Good afternoon. Glad you're here for our final session of the day for the uh, race and social justice track. Uh, my name is Enrique Cerna, and I'm the uh, uh, senior correspondent with uh, KCTS 9 and also Crosscut. Uh, the session that we are going into now is Rethinking Schools to Create Education Equity. And uh, we hope that you've also had a, a great day listening to a lot of the conversations here at this Crosscut Festival, and I think this one is going to be important and worthy today, too. Thank you. So let me introduce our panel. Previously, the Russell F. Stark University professor at the University of Washington, James Banks, holds the Kerry and Linda Killinger Endowed Chair in Diversity Studies. He's a specialist in social studies education and multicultural education. And James, walk up there and have a seat, and please give him a round of applause. Chris Ragdahl is the State Superintendent of Public Instruction. He has worked as a high school history teacher, a local school board member, a state legislator, and a budget and education policy executive. And most importantly, he's a cougar from Washington State. Yeah, go Cougs. There you go. <laughs> also rounding out our uh, panel is Lion Terry, a National Board Certified Teacher in the 2015 Washington State Teacher of the Year. He teaches fourth grade at Lawton Elementary here in the Seattle School Public School System. Please give him a round of applause. And our moderator for today is Claudia Rowe. She is an excellent reporter, education reporter, uh, Pulitzer Prize winning nominated journalist. She currently covers education as a staff reporter for the Seattle Times. And has even done work for KCTS 9. Yay. Please welcome her. And let me quickly uh, note our sponsors to thank them for, uh, without their, uh, their support, we wouldn't be able to have uh, this great day of conversation or this session here today. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Killinger Foundation, and our Race and Social Justice Track sponsor, Seattle Foundation. And now, Claudia, take it. Um, the first thing I want to do is mention that maybe you guys were expecting to see Nadine Burke-Harris, who was... Um, um, uh, our fourth plant panelist for today. She was unable to make it. Um, her plane, flying from wherever, she's on her book tour for this book, um, her plane did not make it out of, I think she was in D.C. So she is not here. However, which is unfortunate and complicated because many of my questions were geared toward this book. However, um, the book is very interesting and valid to talk about, and all of our panelists here know about it, and so we will be speaking about some of the topics that Dr. Burke-Harris touches on in her book. But if we, sorry? The book is called The Deepest Well, uh, Healing the Long-Term Effects of Childhood Adversity. The panel, of course, is about rethinking schools for equity, um, and some of what Dr. Burke-Harris talks about in the book speaks to that question but it's not the only thing we were going to talk about. And the first thing I want to do is just make sure we're all clear on our terms. I think that sometimes people um, use equity and equality interchangeably. I'm going with equity as fairness. So equality can be fair, but equity and equality are not always the same thing, and I don't use them interchangeably. Um, so... 
to me, equity means meeting each kid, each student, where they're at and giving each student what they need as closely as possible. And that's what makes it fair, right? If a kid has um, had tremendous advantage and you give that student the same thing that you give a student who has had tremendous disadvantage, that doesn't seem to be equity in the way I'm talking about it here and the way I think our panelists are talking about it. So I just want to open it up by saying, first to Superintendent Chris Reichdahl, what does each of you, and, and Superintendent, you first, what do you think has been the greatest impediment to equity in Washington State schools? Wow, that's an hour-long conversation by itself. Um, I'm on now. Good. So welcome. And I know you can't see me. It's not because uh, we're flat. It's because I'm that short. So <laughs> you're going to have to like stand in there if you, if you want to see me. Uh, boy, that is a multifaceted question, uh, not the least of which is long systemic and structural elements of, of racism. And we've got to say that word out loud when we talk about schools. It's not, it's not a targeted word at individuals. It's the fact that the system of education has been baked to create advantage for those who come with advantage. So there's that element that we are grappling with in ways we never have before now. Money is an enormous part of the question and resource, and undoubtedly we took a positive step uh, the last year when the legislature said the dependence on local levies for basic ed is creating an opportunity for wealthy communities to be taxed little and generate a lot of money, and low-income communities are taxed a lot and they don't generate a lot of money, so the shift to the state is a step. Uh, but I would suggest that that's actually about equality and not equity, because the next logical step is how do you take $14.5 billion a year in educational investment and actually target it to students and communities and populations that are most disadvantaged by that history that we just talked about. And that's the, I'd say, the frontier. We're not there yet. Uh, we are simply getting to that point where it's a, a system of more financial equality, but the equity questions are still enormous and I would argue barely scratched at this point. You've mentioned um, that we need to get much more sophisticated as a system if we are going to achieve anything approaching equity. Can you speak a little bit specifically, like w what are the building blocks you mean within that? Yeah, so we keep using really blunt and uh, inappropriate tools, in my opinion, to figure out what it is we think students need. So we jump to the 130-year public school experiment that is Washington State, and we say it's all about cognitive, so let's throw more tests at kids, and surely the test score will tell us where we need to drive resources. When you do that, you often drive resources to students who actually are cognitively functioning very, very well. It's not about that. But when language is your barrier to performance on assessment, you have a language gap that we have to close. When ACEs and childhood trauma have remapped the brain and caused behavioral issues that get in the way of cognitive learning, you don't actually have a cognitive learning. You don't have a problem functioning process or concepts. It's that you have some things you have to deal with on the social and emotional scales. And so when I say sophisticated, I mean taking all this research that's been going on here and our guests who couldn't join us and the practice that Lion does in his classroom and systemically making that part of what we do. Right now we buy a program. We say we need lap dollars. Throw it at kids in poverty and surely more money will do a better job with students who are, who are in poverty. It's important. It's really important. But that's different than saying who are the students and why exactly are they struggling? And right now we use really blunt instruments. And I would say in the case particularly of students with special needs, our special education program 
in some cases is over-identifying students when really the gap is language, the gap is poverty, the, the gap is ACEs and other uh, elements of learning, and not necessarily that, that cognitive stuff. So um, I feel like we are uh, the software industry of about 20 years ago where we kind of knew what it might do for us. Uh, we had an idea how big it could be, but do we have the courage to make very big changes to see it? And that's the moment education's at right now. We now have the research in place. We now know what we ought to be doing. Can we get out of the rut of, quite frankly, the structure we've always had? A thousand instructional hours, 180 days, 10 weeks off in the summer, go to six periods and then go home and come back and go six more periods in the middle and high. Can we restructure it is the big question. What is what are you finding as an impediment to that? I, I don't think this is the first time you've had this conversation. So you, you surely have floated some of these ideas about restructuring the year, perhaps the school day in, in your work. And, and what do you come up against? Well, <laughs> resource is important, although we think, uh, you know, this is a billion dollar question on top of, like I said, 14 or 15 billion to actually truly extend the year and think more like a Southeast Asian or European model as one example. That isn't an elixir by any means. We have a culture challenge. We all grew up in this system and it worked for us. So why doesn't it just keep working for everybody? And now we know that half of our students are students of color and 42% of our students are in extreme poverty and almost 60% of our kindergartners. Uh, our seniors in high school, by the way, look nothing like our kindergartners right now. That's how rapidly this change is occurring. So we've got culture barriers, right? We've got systemic financial barriers. We have courage problems. Could I really do it differently? We have a higher ed problem. How will I possibly make money in higher ed if the teachers don't come to me for 10 weeks at a time and get their professional development? Like, how would that work? Like, how could that be different? So um, it's a big notion uh, without all the answers, but but the risk now of saying we now have the research and the know-how, but we don't have the courage, is a new form of injustice like we've never seen. Um, you mentioned twice, I just want to, uh, Lion Terry, I want to get to you in one second, but you twice mentioned ACEs, and, and that is the subject of uh, Dr. Burke Harris's book, and I just want to uh, put it out there for everyone in case we don't all know. That's adverse childhood experiences. And there is very, very solid research now, 20 years old, based on a, a study of 17,000, actually mostly Caucasian, college-educated people in San Francisco that found huge numbers with very um, trackable and common childhood, traumatic childhood experiences. Divorce is one of them. Um, emotional neglect, I mean, these are pretty common things. Um, they have a, not just a correlation, but a, there's a causational relationship with kids' behavior and ability to learn. So no doubt, you know, two, I think Dr. Burke Harris is saying that two-thirds of the adults in America have one ACE. Um, a huge number of us have at least four. They have dramatic effects on learning and, for instance, school discipline, impulse control. And so maybe realizing that we all have this um, to some degree, we could be rethinking our schools to better address what all of us are and what our kids are coming in there with. So, Lion, um, well, how do you see yeah, this? I think of it in, in terms of, uh, and you know, I want to thank Crosscut for inviting a, a, a practicing teacher to be here, um, the uh, to talk about education issues. Please, um, always ask a practicing teacher. 
Uh, one of the things I, I like to talk about is that we do need to redefine what we mean when we talk about what our goal is in school. Right? And so uh, in Seattle Public Schools and in my school this year, one thing we did when parents came in for parent-teacher conferences, we asked them, you know, what is your goal for your child? And I, I do uh, parent-student-teacher conferences, even with a, a nine-year-old. And, uh, and so the parent sits there with the student right next to me and says, this is what I want for him. This is what I want for her when she graduates from college, when she graduates from high school. These are my hopes and dreams, right? And their hopes and dreams are always things like, I want them to be happy and successful and good people and uh, can contribute to society, all those sorts of things, right? When we define those as the goals of education, when we rethink what our hopes and dreams are for our kids, that gets us out of the, the over-testing mindset. It gets us out of that mindset that what we need to have are, are you know, little robots who do really well on, on these standardized tests. Right? Sure, we want them to be great readers and writers and thinkers and mathematicians, and we want all of that, but that's not going to be good enough anymore. We want so much more than that, and that's what parents say when they come into my classroom and they say in front of their kids and to me what they want for their kids. And you know, thinking about your kids, you probably would say the similar things. So are you saying that you think schools now, and, and any of you please jump in, are you saying schools now need to deliver something different than they were expected to deliver 40 years ago? I think fundamentally, yes. I think we have to deliver something different. I think we have to deliver much more. You know, kids are, are learning at a much more rapid pace. We have standards that are much higher now. And we've learned from a lot of research and a lot of you know, observation in the classroom that kids are capable of way more than we expect them to, than, than we've always expected them, uh, expected of them. And, uh, and, you know, the challenge with that is that, again, we are stuck in a mold sometimes that doesn't allow that. We have certain expectations, you know, and so I'm teaching fourth grade and I teach these standards for fourth grade and that's what I'm supposed to teach. And, you know, so, and that's what's expected of me. And so there are challenges for sure in, in redefining that. Yeah. But yeah, I would like to add that one of the things that we really need to um, teach that we didn't deliver in the past is how to get along with people from diverse racial, Absolutely. ethnic groups and linguistic groups and religious groups with Muslim students increasing in schools and in universities, the cross-cultural competency skills, the skills to understand racism and sexism and sexual harassment and those kinds of issues that really need to have more pr prominence in schools. So yes, we need to really rethink what we deliver. I had a conversation with my students just last week about uh, the difference between gay and transgender and lesbian. In fourth grade? In fourth grade. Okay. Right? I'd never had that conversation with fourth graders before, but it came up in my classroom. I'm not afraid to address it. I've had conversations about racism, about prejudice, and about implicit bias. Right? We have to have these conversations in our classrooms. And we need to start talking about them in fourth grade and about, and about consent. Right? I mean, we need to have all these conversations in all of our classrooms at every level. Right? And we can, we can do that. And that is changing the way, you know, what we do in school. So let's put it in an economic context, too, because some of you are always trying to reconcile this passion of these parents who come into a classroom. You, you are parents and grandparents yourself, many of you. You know what you want, but you know the world's different, too. There's something different about it that doesn't make it the same 
uh, challenge for kids as it was in the past. And I always kind of ground us in the fact that most of us, when we graduated from school, probably could have tolerated life with a high school diploma only financially. My parents had an eighth grade education. They were born in 1935. They both uh, since passed away. But we lived in a country that pushed kids out of school and the consequences were much smaller because we still had egg industry and manufacturing and production. There was a way to get loans. There was an opportunity that was different than today. We know the globalization reality. We read a lot about it, but I will tell you right in our classrooms what that means is our students from the moment they're there have a different kind of pressure. They understand the risk that if they follow their dreams and it's not a pathway that leads to something sustainable, that there's a bigger risk to them. We didn't worry about that 40 and 50 years ago. Um, we do now. And so when we talk about sort of inequality, I always also bring in the income issues because we're also stretching our income right now, right? I mean, we're, I joke and hope you're not offended, make America genie again. The genie index measures income inequality and we're tapping it at record levels right now. So you have more kids with more diverse backgrounds, with more poverty than we've ever seen. So should we do something different in schools? Yeah, community and schools model, bringing food resources, bringing shelter opportunities, bringing education to them that was maybe historically solved in community. Parents and families expect that to be solved in a one-stop place of school. And so we can pretend like that's not the role of schools, and then we can keep making sure that 20% of our kids don't graduate on time or we can make it the role of schools in partnership with the private sector and the nonprofit community, and we can actually make schools the centerpiece of service. So it is a dramatically different world, which, which compels the reason we have to do the things uh, that have been mentioned. And the social class stratification is deep, not only within the general communities, but also in communities of color. Uh, blacks used to live in one community, regardless of the class, but now we see enormous stratification with the black middle class uh, becoming increasingly uh, having the opportunity to make it in many ways where the black poor is still left in, in poor communities. So we see a tremendous social class schism, not only in the general population, but also among people of color. Yeah, so and class is a major factor now. Yeah, I see that even, so I teach in uh, Magnolia, for those of you who know, it's a kind of upper income uh, neighborhood, and um, I see it in my neighborhood, the opportunity gaps, right? We talk a lot of times, we've, you know, as we started to understand the gaps that we have in, in education, we've talked about it as achievement gaps. Now I look at it clearly as opportunity gaps, the, the stuff that Superintendent Reichdahl is talking about, the access to those opportunities, right? A couple years ago, I had four kids in my, no, six kids in my classroom who had extra tutoring outside of time, right? Tutors paid for by their parents. And then I had, you know, a group of 20 kids who maybe would have benefited from that tutoring as well, but didn't have that opportunity. And our school and our culture and the way we did it, that wasn't something that we offered to kids was that opportunity, right? So you think about those kids who are coming in with adverse childhood experiences, those kids who have come in, you know, being beaten down by, by racism and implicit bias, and they're already behind the eight ball, and then suddenly they're in fourth grade, and they still don't have the opportunities that the other kids have. And we continue to do things like, you know, not, so that's in a microcosm of one school, but, you know, across the whole district, we have some PTAs that raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for their kids of privilege, and we have other PTAs that don't, right? And there's a huge equity issue with that. So, uh, Lion, are, would you advocate so, uh, some sort of system where PTAs sort of throw into a pot and then that, that all of them 
and that is distributed, you know, based on sort of the, the relative poverty of whatever school, as, as happens in some places? Uh, I wish that would work. Uh, I wish people would still contribute to that. <laughs> I fear that in Seattle, we would say, no, if it's not going to my kid, I'm not going to contribute. And, you know, I, I know it because I have a student in high school now. Uh, they have bypassed the whole PTA thing, where now they have foundations, the school foundation, or, or you know, they just set it up a different way. No, I'm going to... I'm gonna, privilege my kids in a different way than contributing to the PTA. People are going to get around that system, no matter what the system is. And, you know, I'd rather that we were not allowed to contribute to school at all uh, from private. Do you think this is particular to Seattle? I, I heard you no. mention Seattle. Okay. I, I worked in New York City and it was the same thing there. Right when I taught in Brooklyn, there were some schools that raised hundreds of thousands of dollars and others that did not. And they, you know, in New York, they tried it with like 20% of all that PTAs raised went to a pot, mm -hmm. like you're talking about. And you know, so there was some benefit to that, but you know, there's different models. And so, so there's an old institution that used to do this where we would tax and make sure that everyone got opportunity. It's called taxes. Yay! And, um, <laughs> and it's, a, it's a crazy de democratic notion. And um, so you're living in a state right now that contributes about 3.1 or 3.2% of gross state product back to our public schools. So all of our economic activity through this sales tax that is horribly regressive ends up with a giant pot of money. The legislature makes decisions and 3.2% of all that economic activity ends up in our schools. The national average is 3.6%. That's a billion and a half dollars a year that if we were just the national average that we would be at in terms of a return investment, an amount of money we would put back in. Now we would want to do it differently as we've discussed. The international average for countries of gross domestic product is 4%. We are a low-tax state and a low-investment state in our schools, and I know nobody wants to talk about that, but the most conservative foundation in the country puts us at a total tax burden. I'm not just talking schools. I'm talking everything in our state at 9.3%, and the national average is 9.8%. So this half a percent keeps creeping up in the data. We're a slightly under-taxed state to the average, and we're about a half a percent behind in public education. So can you imagine if we could rethink what contribution, right, to the demos looks like, to the civility, to the humanity of our state. And we didn't think about it in terms of I've got mine, so I'll do PTA, or I've got mine, so I'll do levy, or I've got mine, so I'll do private pay. Imagine if it really was this question of equity, not equality, because it's not about rolling $14,000 at every single kid the same. It's about putting resources in places that need more it means the tax code has to follow it. And it's a brutal conversation in our state. I understand it. Mm -hmm. But um, if we don't ask that hard question on the front end, you won't get the investments on the back end. And uh, you're here. You will not hear me complain about my taxes. <laughs> Um, Dr. Banks, I know that school segregation is um, an issue of particular interest for you and a particular area of study, and I, I also know that you feel that, it, that while um, as a country, and probably as a state too, we had made great gains in this area, particularly as a country, we have been backsliding. Um, but I just want to ask you, you know, there are programs, say, in places like Oakland, that specifically target education to segments of kids, say, um, black youth. So Oakland has a, a sort of very high-profile program that's gotten a lot of interest that specifically is only teaching young black men and boys. 
if you feel that segregation, increasing segregation is a problem, how do you perceive programs like that that may be helping kids, particularly kids with high ACEs? Yeah, see, I don't think it's either or. I think it's fine to have schools, uh, classrooms of all black males that focus on their particular needs, but there also should be opportunities to bring them together with other kids. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's either or, I think it's both and, that we need both desegregated schools and desegregated experiences. If I was directing one of those programs for black boys, I would make sure that there were opportunities for them to have experiences with all white kids or Latino kids. That, so I think it's both and that we can provide them with both of those opportunities so that they can learn to live with themselves and learn to live with others. So I think both are needed. And, and that I'm not all, here, here. Thank you. I'm not against uh, educating girls in a girls' setting, but also make sure they have experiences that are with boys. I, so I think both and is what I would advocate. I, on the same way, I think it's a both and for my white kids. You know, so I have two students in Seattle Public Schools, seventh and ninth grader, and I don't feel like they're getting a very diverse educational experience, and I would much prefer that they had a more diverse experience, right? So within their white schools, they, they really don't have that interaction with kids of color to the degree that will make them successful in our country, right? And successful in, in our emerging society, right? And Alice Mile, a teacher of College Columbia, many years ago in the 40s, the 50s wrote a book called The Short-Changed Children uh, of Suburbia. And mm -hmm. she gave an example of a story of a little girl in an all-white middle-class school who wrote an essay saying that um, about, about the, the, the maid, that the maid also has a home. And she didn't even know that there were families without a maid. So that, she called it Alice Mile, The Short-Changed Children of Suburbia. And so that they, too, are short change if they don't have diversity. So, Lion, um, when you're talking about your segregated school that's almost all white um, and you're wishing for a, a sort of more diverse experience, I think you're speaking about schools that are segregated by virtue of zip code, essentially. Correct. Um, so would you advocate busing as Seattle used to do? Uh, well, the challenge for that is that I'm also a, a, a fierce kind of neighborhood advocate because I believe that schools need to be a necessary part of a community. And I've taught in schools in which there was busing and I felt like there was a disconnect between the students and the teachers and the community, right? So now we have kids who, um, you know, meld really well into the community and kids who walk to school and kids who have friends and neighbors and you know that they know and so I, I love that aspect of school and I think that you know I don't want to give that up as well uh, I think one of the things we need to look at is identifying um, what makes a great school so sort of systemically uh, my school 85% of our 85% and above of do really well on test scores and people and we got a, a you know school of distinction letter from the State Board of Education last year and the year before for our growth and for our achievement. And we have a lot to work on. And one of the things we have to work on is our, our understanding of other cultures and our understanding of different people and our, and our diversity, you know, that, those sorts of uh, impacts on our kids, some of those input measures that we could change. And um, go ahead. I also think it's terribly important that in an all-white or an all-black school that we, we desegregate the curriculum that we use films, we use 
books, that we don't have to have an all-white atmosphere in an all-white school. Absolutely. Also, we have to remember there's diversity among white kids. White <laughs> yes. kids aren't the same. Yes. <laughs> so we can't assume that they are homogeneous. They're, they're white kids who are, have different religious backgrounds, different gender orientation. So we can, don't make the mistake of assuming that whites are homogeneous. There is diversity within whites. Some have disabilities. Some have reading issues. Some have, again, different religions, different cultures. And we need to deal with that diversity as well as introduce their own diversity and then let them understand that there's diversity outside their group. So, so for example, in my classroom, uh, I have 14 different languages spoken at home in my classroom. 27 kids, 14 different languages, right? And you'd say, say oh, Magnolia, you know, Lily White neighborhood. No, we have 14, you know, from Swedish to Japanese to Chinese and different variations of Chinese to, you know, you name but, it. But there's so. a real myth in our society yeah, right. that whites are homogeneous. Yeah. And many people internalize that myth, including many of my white students. Right. I asked them to deal with their <laughs> diversity, and they said, Professor Banks, we don't have any. We're white. <laughs> and, so, and, and so I have to really press them. And one of the first assignments in my ethnic studies course, which they think is about the other, one of their first assignments is to do their family history. And they yep. come back with some amazing discoveries, that there was once an Indian grandmother that, that, that nobody knew about, or that, that they were Jewish and they didn't know it. So they discover many things about their histories that have been hidden or ignored. So a tool maybe that, that hopefully um, you all will get a chance to really dive into over the next year or so that we're building, this question of how do we raise how do we raise our awareness of these equity questions and these diversity questions when we've used very simple tools at the state level to say good school, bad school, right? Failing school, everyone else, you're fine. And we have these old cut scores. Bottom 5%, we're going to label them failing, we're going to send notes to parents, we're going to put them in the newspaper, we're going to shame those schools. And the correlation to poverty in particular and to race was absolutely tight, right? So one of the things we're doing in our new accountability plan that we brought in in the last year is we have the opportunity now to say, let's not keep oversimplifying this to make it about test scores and, and preparation for traditional academic pathways. Let's have measures that are a little more robust uh, for students. So chronic absenteeism is a big factor. And if you look at it in terms of student outcomes and you look at it in terms of ACEs, for example, you'll say, oh, now we're starting to talk a little bit here. Um, are we getting students every, is every student on track in ninth grade, this critical pivotal year for projection through high school? Is there an equitable access to dual credit programs where students get college credit while they're in high school? Um, we're putting these variables in and the really cool part is we're going to now turn this around for all of you in the next year. You're going to be able to say, I, I think my school is good, 85% grade on test scores. I want to know about that other 15%. So we're going to give you a tool in Tableau that the public can go to and say, I want to look at African-American student performance in math in third grade in my elementary school, and I want to look at the elementary school six miles down the road. What's happening here? What's happening in special education? So this question of what leverage do we have is the question I get so much. Well, what leverage do you have? Mm -hmm. When you talk about the segregation that is de facto in this city big time, 
it is a housing issue, right? It is a, it is a question of economics. It is a question of education. It is an absolute structural racism and lending. I mean, these, these are rooted so deeply that you think, God, can we overcome that? And, and, and my contribution to it that I want you to all feel some hope about is while we work on big structural things as building blocks for equity, the system itself in education can change too. And until we put a spotlight on it, and Lion can go to his data and say, I want to know who these 15% of my students are who are not performing well. And by the way, he's going to find out it's students with special needs, and he's going to find out it's students in extreme poverty because they still live in Magnolia. Yep. And suddenly, every school a year from now is going to get a report card. It used to be we just blamed and shamed the bottom 5%. Every school in the state, all 2,400 of them, will get a report card that says, every one of you has, has work to do in student groups. And we think it is a way for at least advancing the conversation of equity because no longer can you hide behind the, oh, thank goodness I didn't make the newspapers, I wasn't in the bottom 5%. Because injustice is happening everywhere, from Bellevue to Vancouver to Walla Walla to Spokane to Bellingham. It's just we've masked it with a simple tool like tests and a simple measure like only identify the bottom 5%. So we're gonna unmask that. And we think that opens different conversations across the state. Yeah, and I think related to that, we really do need to think about what is a good school beyond academic achievement. Can kids get along with each other across racial, religious boundaries? I think we really need to open up to look at social skills and social competency and cultural competency should be important indices of achievement. And we need to think about achievement beyond reading and writing and, and arithmetic. And how do you teach that? How do you teach cohesion in a community in a school? Well, I think you, by what Dewey said many years ago in Democracy and Education, that we teach democracy by creating conditions of democracy within the classroom. So that you teach diversity, you teach r race relations by implementing it within the classroom by if their kids are segregating by race within the classroom put them in heterogeneous groups make sure that there are time again I said it's okay for some time for the groups to be all one thing but deliberately intervene to make sure that they are also groups where kids work together from different groups in my own classroom at Washington I deliberately mix my students up in activities in the classroom, and these are university students. So it, it, it can start at any time. So it needs to be the democracy, the diversity, the cohesion need to be, we can talk. I was gonna say in turn, we turn blue, but I won't turn blue. But, <laughs> but we can talk forever, but unless we, unless we walk the talk within the classroom, it won't be meaningful to children. And that's why Dewey said, to teach democracy, we practice it in the classroom. We don't have to say, to look at students as citizens in waiting, but they are citizens now, and the, and the classroom becomes a model democracy. That's what do it. Yeah, here, here. Can I add on to that? Uh, I think about that all the time in my classroom because I know as a white man that I bring implicit bias to my classroom. We all do. I have yeah. a black man. I sure. do. Oh, yeah, we all bring implicit bias, right? And so the challenge in the classroom is to think how we can combat this with ourselves, right? So 
uh, a lot of teachers, and myself included, have a, like a, a name stick jar, right? First day of school, all the kids write their name on a popsicle stick, and I put it in a cup in the front of my classroom, right? When we need to form partnerships, when we need to say, okay, everybody's going to talk to other kids about reading, I pull out two sticks, and I chart those kids, right? The, right in front of everybody, I just pull out the first two sticks, those two kids are partners, right? Sometimes when they're with their best, you know, their bestie, sometimes there was somebody they've never communicated with in the class before, right? These are little things that we're doing in Seattle Public Schools now and in, in our schools around the state to, uh, to combat those small little uh, biases that we have that allow kids to get away with not interacting with each other and to, and allow teachers to get away with not calling on uh, maybe students who have special needs or students of color. And Robert Slavin's research supports what you're doing. He found that if you put, let's say, white and black kids together for a group task within the classroom, guess what happens on the playground? It carries over. Right. They also form friends outside the group in the playground. Robert Slavin at John Hopkins University's research that's reported in one of my books, The Handbook of Research on Multicultural Education. It's not the kind of book you buy. You get it from the library. <laughs> I want it. <laughs> well, it's a big research book. And, and, and it's you're a, you're it's killing a, sales. Now stop already. Just hold on. It's in all good libraries. <laughs> and that's one of the criteria. Does your library have... Yeah. <laughs> okay. The Handbook of Research on Multicultural Education by Banks. Well, I think that's one of the things, though, when we talk about, you know, how are we going to look at what, what makes a good school? You know, so I've advocated for years, too, that's not just about outcome measures, like, and we should be looking at things like disproportionate discipline as well, uh, along with the other things um, that uh, Superintendent Reichdahl mentioned. But, you know, we also have to look at some input measures, right? Are the texts in the student in the library a diverse collection of texts, right? That represent all the kids in our society, all the people in our society. You know, are there um, there are other input measures like how many minutes of recess do our students have? Minutes of open free play time? How many minutes of PE do they have? How many minutes of music? How many counselors do they have per per head in the in the in the school? Right? All of these things are going to help us combat those equity issues. Because a few years ago, when we were bargaining, I was on the bargaining team for Seattle. I was sitting in a room with 40 other educators, and we discovered uh, through just conversation that in schools in the north of the Ship Canal, in the north end, um, had f 30 to 45 minutes of recess, and students in the south end had 15 to 30 minutes of recess. And, 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 oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. And, you know, I think another critical criteria for determining effective schools, to what extent do we perpetuate democracy and political empowerment? and political, a, a sense of political inclusion. Look at our nation today. Don't we need citizen participation? Look at the percentage of people who participate in our election compared to Australia, for example. 50-something percent, only 50-something percent participate in our last presidential election. Compared to Australia, it's like 80%. Of course, they, they have to there because it's, because it's illegal if they don't. But, but the point I is, second that. how do we increase political participation and how do we increase civic and political efficacy? And that should be an important criteria of academic achievement. 
and of schools. Um, in the interest of civic engagement, let's have a couple questions here from our audience. Okay, for any of you, um, how would you end the persistent support of the status quo teacher in classroom of students with all the biases of that model? Well, I think you, um, you start with teacher training and the training of educators, and you give them an experience that's not the status quo. So I think it has to be, you have to start with structures in our university, training programs. I think you have to start with the structures in the school. And so I think we have to, again, going back to Dewey, we have to implement and show the change if it's going to be uh, effective and internalized by educators. So I think there's an inductive and a deductive approach to this. Again, a top-down and a bottom-up way to do this. You have this amazing core of 60-plus thousand classroom teachers right now who are hungry and thirsty for a lot of this transformation. They've been in the system a long time. They didn't go through teacher prep programs that really embrace these harder questions. They want it. You have to invest in them ongoing. But you also have to have an eye on the future. How is it even humanly possible that less than 10% of our teachers are teachers of color, but now 40% of our students are and rapidly going to be a majority in the next six years. Well, they are nationally a majority. Yeah. yeah. But you're talking about Washington, in Washington State. Washington State. So, they're, gonna, they're already an, uh, a majority nationally. So, so I always kind of look at, like, when did we not see this coming? And, and I'll give you a couple numbers. <laughs> 20 years ago, we had 850,000 students. Today, we have 1.1 million students in Washington State and our public schools. We've grown by 250,000 students in 20 years. The Latino-Latina growth of that is 200,000 of the 250,000. The richness of language that exists in our communities from Seattle to the smallest of communities in Eastern Washington is right there. Our paraeducators and our support staff are disproportionately staff of color relative to certificated teachers. We have this pipeline, we have this richness, we have this language. And again, I mean no offense, but what do we reward financially when teaching? If you have your own money and you're already in the system and you can get a master's degree, we pay you more, which is great. We want more content knowledge, but it reinforces who's there. If you do things and pay them yourself, national board certification, we pay you, which is great. We want nationally board certified teacher. What don't we pay for? Coming in with a second language competency. Can you imagine if we said to every young person, do you realize if you teach, we'll pay you five or $10,000 more if you bring a second language into that classroom? That's a totally different message to young people about I wanna teach, because now they're not just asking me because I'm brown to be in front of brown kids. They're saying, I bring something of culture, heritage, language, and structure that is different than what they have today, and they're gonna financially reward me for that? We're competing in public schools with Amazon and Microsoft and some of the most incredible companies in the world who have already figured this out from a talent acquisition standpoint, and they don't even blink an eye about paying folks more when it creates the opportunity for success and productivity. And in schools, we still have very traditional incentive structures that mostly reinforce what we're already doing. So these are the hard questions that we want to have. This is what we're bringing to the Professional Educator Standards Board. This is what we're asking the legislature. Again, it's not a knock on who's there or why we're there today. It's what would you do differently if you got this investment level up to 3.6% of GDP and had an extra billion and a half over the next 10 years? Would you really put it in the current system? Or would you think about it so differently that you could actually change outcomes? That's the big conversation. I'll take a crack at that question then.
Uh, I'll take a crack at that question in a, in a micro way, right? I, I heard this analogy the other day I really like. Um, teaching needs to evolve from one on 27 tennis, right? Where I'm the teacher and I'm having a one-on-one -on -one match with all 27 of my students to a soccer game where I'm the referee. Right, where there's 27 kids out there and they're all like interacting with one another and passing the ball around and working together and, and moving in different places and such, and I'm moderating the conversation. Right? That to me is a, is a fundamental change of what school looks like when you think of it as a soccer game as opposed to a tennis match. Right? And I'm thinking that's the kind of thing we can do right now in our classrooms, in, you know, like in Seattle Public Schools, in, in the current state of our classrooms, we can change what it looks like in our classrooms, right? My students get up every day after 45 minutes of instruction and we dance around and sometimes we do yoga and sometimes we sing songs and sometimes we go for a walk around the block because I know that's what's good for their brains is to not just sit there and receive information from me. That's not what I'm trying to do as their teacher. I'm trying to facilitate uh, a civic conversation that builds not only their knowledge base, but their understanding of how to be in society. And I think we can change what that looks like in our classrooms. Um, that actually brings us to a question here, which is about ACEs. And I am going to, um, in honor of our empty chair here, I am going to ask this question, which was one I was going to ask anyway. So thank you to whoever wrote this one. Um, the question is, how does the education system screen for ACEs in the student population? And if so, when you identify high ACEs in a student, what does the education system do to mitigate that? Um, that is very similar to a question I was going to ask you, which is, if you were to screen students for ACEs, just like you do, say, for vaccinations, what would that do to your expectations of that student? I have some real concerns about the screening and, and labeling the child. I think it could lead us into the cultural deprivation conception that we had in the 60s and 70s, the culturally deprived child. My concern about this theory is that it, will, it focuses on the child characteristics and the family and not on the school structures. So that is my concern. So, um, so let me bring another angle. Yeah. Could I just finish? Yeah. I don't think that the school is the primary institution to deal with these kinds of issues with kids' problems. And I think that when it comes to the school, to focus on the deficits of the child can lead to uh, a kind of blaming the victim. Well, some of the things that Lion is talking about, like yoga, getting around, moving, um, are actually the things, they sound so simple, that, that Dr. Burke Harris's research is, is saying actually change the brain. And there are six things, and they are really pedestrian. Sleep, exercise, nutrition, mental health, meditation or mindfulness, and a um, consistent caring relationship. As a, as a sort of buffer to less consistent and less caring relationships. And so what have we done in the face of that research? We've stuck with a six and a half hour day, obsessed with two subjects and testing, so we've shrunk recess and lunch. And so we have to re-examine everything in light of the research. This is sort of our theme here today. And, 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 and the only sort of counter I would bring is Every screening tool can be used for good or evil like any piece of technology, right? It can label and shame and blame and isolate, 
And that's my concern. And, it, and it's a real concern because we've seen it. We've seen it in special education in this state and around the country for decades. Or it can be used to understand the needs of individual students. And if we do some of those structural reforms we've talked about, you can actually drive resource to where the need is. And so somebody asked, what do we do and how do we do it? It's really kind of clunky right now. We don't even have universal screening for dyslexia, which is a bill running through the legislature right now. We don't have universal screening for um, high cap or gifted education. It's got its own controversy. We don't really have universal screening for students with special needs. It is the professionals in those buildings or a parent advocate who's saying, can I get an additional assessment? I think something's going on. And so we leave it a little bit to chance and a little bit to privilege. But often the, and the, that's a challenge. That and is often a real the challenge. assessment victimized the victim. Yeah, that's what I worry about too, is the assessment victimizing the victim. Victimi you know, if we identify, if I knew the ACE score of all of my students, I would worry significantly about my own implicit bias. Right, my bias against you know. Oh, I'm gonna just I'm gonna have the tyranny of low expectations. Oh, I know you probably have a you know you've been going through a lot, so I'm not gonna expect you to to achieve in school. However, I mean, what I what I am gonna do is I'm gonna try to be the buffering adult, like like Dr. Burke Harris talks about in her book. I'm gonna try to be that connector, that person who. Uh, connects with that student to the degree that I know every student in my classroom by name, strength, and need. Right? I know what they need, I know what they're doing well, and I compliment them on it, and I'm going to push them a little bit when I know they're ready to, do, to move up to the next, to the next thing. Right? And, I, and I'm going to connect with them in, in terms of like, hey, how was your basketball game last night or on Friday night? You know, and how did this go? And how's that friendship with that person going? Right? I'm going to try to be that buffering adult that she talks about that is the crucial element that many kids, are many kids with adverse childhood experiences are it's missing. Just, it's just that I don't want to give that young black active boy another label. Yeah, I'm That's with my you. Word. What, what I assume is that they all have it. Right? Every I'm kid, gonna, and not only black kids. Right, not only black kids. kids. I'm assuming that my students have ACEs, and yeah, I know from the I'm research assuming, that they do. But when it's added to the black kid, with right. all the burdens he already has, another label, and that's my concern. Well, it could be. The flip side would be, um, I think she would say, if you knew that kid's score, maybe you would interpret their behavior differently, not as something uh, defiant or disobedient, something that needs to be disciplined in some manner, but maybe you would just see it differently. You would understand what they're doing differently. Then we would have to work very hard with teachers and their self-conceptions, because I've been out there and I've seen what happens. Yeah, we teachers, we, ha we have a lot of work to do at owning our own culture. Right? Teachers have and, to own our own culture. the notion she says, of another label scares me. To, yeah, I'm really with you. scares me. Right, I agree. The notion of another label. But I do think that if we're looking at schools as delivering a lot more than we've, we've said that they would in the past, so not just reading, you know, reading in math factories, right? Go back we're and creating read people. Frank Reisman, the culturally deprived child, who had the long list of what we, we black kids couldn't do. Yeah. And, and, we def and many of us defied it. I wouldn't be here today if my teachers, my black teachers in the South had accepted Frank Reisman's list. They didn't even know about his list. And I'm so glad they didn't. Um, I think we are just about at the end here. So I want to open it up to each of you to sort of say a final word about how do we rethink our education. And not just speaking in platitudes, but actually concretely, like when we leave here, what can we do this year to readdress the questions of equity, really specifically. I think we need to examine our hearts and minds 
and make a new commitment to equity. So each of our school boards has to take very seriously their role in addressing the needs of all children and not oversimplifying it based on some historical data we've given them. We've got to break it down differently. That means each board, each administration, and each teacher knowing their student uh, in a way that's different. We have to take very demonstrable steps to have a different political courage conversation about taxation, and I'm serious about that. And I don't just mean raise taxes. It's not that simple. But the idea that we go to the least sort of offensive thing to get it done in the legislature and still disconnect from the larger needs of the economy is real. So real dialogue using ink all over the Seattle Times about real tax policy changes that doesn't allow the legislature just default to more property tax that's going to have all of you freaking out when you haven't seen your statement yet. You will. A very different approach to that. And then I also want to reintroduce this other notion, and it's, um, it's not uh, something easy. And there's lots of controversy about class size, but if I can pile on the Lions analogy, there's actually more than just a center referee in a soccer game of 11 on 11, 22 kids exploring the game. There are two line judges. There are three adults trying to help kids play within the rules and learn the game. That's a ratio of about seven to one. The Seahawks, the most talented football team in America, <laughs> has 12 or 14 coaches for 55 athletes. That's a, that's a ratio of four to one for the people who are already at the top of their game making millions. And we stick our children in 25s and 27s and 30s and 35 to ones. And we ask our teachers to be mental health specialists and behavior specialists and everything else. That is not, that is not in any way saying that teachers aren't just rocking it right now with what they're given. But if we were really serious about this question of understanding gaps and wanting to close gaps and moving resources with courageous tax conversations to communities that need it, you would, have meant, you would, you would absolutely swoop in more adults to change the game for them, and that's really hard. Can we tolerate it in our communities of white privilege and wealth getting less and paying more so that communities who have been adversely impacted for 130 years get more and pay a little less? Can we really tolerate that? Look in the mirror and ask yourself if you're willing to pay more and get less because that is the conversation and it's hard and no one wants to talk about it. They want to talk about equality, everyone getting the same. Equality is not equity and it's a hard one to have and I hope, I hope this kind of thing happens a lot to ask those hard questions. Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure quite how to beat that because he's so right right, about what we need to be able to see in our classrooms and understand, right? When I think about having read uh, the book we came here to talk about, uh, unfortunately with the author not being here, uh, I was so impassioned by the idea that this is what we're doing in our schools is we're creating buffering adults and we're creating these relationships with real people. And I'm trying in my classroom to create excellent citizens for our society, right? That's what we're doing is we're strengthening society through education. And it's a very, very difficult job being a teacher, also incredibly re rewarding many days, but also very difficult, especially when you have 27 to one and no nurse and no counselor and no assistant principal and no aid. That's the, my reality in my classroom, in my school, right? And that's, you know, and that's the reality in many, many schools, 
regardless of whether they're privileged or not, right? And so we need to at least set the baseline somewhere and, and be able to think about how are we connecting to every single kid and how are we providing for each of those kids to have somebody who's going to inspire them and somebody who's going to make them the, the great citizens we want in our society. Yeah, and I just want to piggyback on that and say my parting words, we need to make active citizens who are going to participate because I'm deeply concerned about the political atmosphere in our nation and worried about leaders who are violating some of our historic tradition. So how do we, as teachers, social studies teachers, and other teachers, mobilize thoughtful citizens who have political sophistication and political skills to act to make our nation humane and ma maintain this democracy because democracies are fragile. They're very fragile. Thank you all um, for your passion and your courage.